Villas Grace Church. Building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know Him, to grow in Him, to go with Him. The ad read something that said, Coca-Cola, ask for it by its full name, then you will get the genuine. It wasn't until the 1940s that Coca-Cola finally conceded to the their customers who continued to shorten the name to Coke, and they finally trademarked the name Coke. But it was not till 1971 when they gave full voice to the word Coke, when they did an ad campaign that featured young people from all over the world on a hill in, in Italy singing, I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. The title of the song was I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And it also had the words, it's the real thing. Now, you learn something every day. When I did the research on this, I, felt, I always felt like, I always thought, well, this is a nice little song about world peace and that Coca-Cola paid for the rights to use it and they added the word, I'd like to buy the world of Coke and it's the real thing. But I found out it was actually written for Coca-Cola. And other singers later, like the Hill Seekers, they... They sang the song as a ballad or whatever and, and removed the words Coke, and it's the real thing. Now, some people today, still, when they order a soft drink of any kind, especially in the South, they ask for a Coke. And I know I, I kind of have a nostalgic attachment to Coke. I played Little League for the Coke team in St. Petersburg. Uh, it was always my thing in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, but I know when I go to a restaurant and I ask for a Coke, they say, is a Pepsi okay? And that's something that kind of Coca-Cola insisted upon. They still don't want you to attach it to uh, a generic. But you know, there are a lot of other products that we kind of use the generic name of, and I just brought my props here. Like, what is this? Kleenex. Yeah, see, it doesn't matter if you use puffs or... or uh, Scotties, or in this case, this is from Members Mark Sam's Club. We always call them Kleenex, right? Or at least a lot of people I know do. Really, they would what you say, facial tissues. Okay. Some of you did a lot of gift wrapping for Christmas time. And what did you use to seal the packages? Scotch tape. Scotch tape. You know, that's 3M product. That's the brand name. But everybody says Scotch tape. Last thing I have here, if I can find them. What do you call these little sticks with cotton on either end? Q-tips, but that's a brand name, okay? But we always use that as a generic. Now, when it comes to the word disciple, which we're going to discuss today, the opposite is in effect. When you come to churches or wherever else in church circles, you hear the word disciple, you think of, of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus around, 11 of whom later would be called apostles as they were sent out on a mission to preach the gospel, but really, the word disciple is older than the Bible. Uh, the, the English word that we use, disciple, comes from the Latin disciplus, and it translates the Greek word mathetes, which simply means a learner, a pupil, a student. And even as early as Socrates, his students were called his disciples, or the disciples of Confucius, or if you're a disciple of a certain uh, form of martial arts. Uh, the word just simply means a learner, a follower, or whatever. So it's really kind of a generic word, and it's important to say that as we approach our verses for today. Think of that as we read the verses 
on the screen. John chapter 6, verses 59 to 65. We're going to talk about true disciples of Christ. So as these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from him from the Father. Now that these things, as it mentions, that were taught uh, are the previous verses we discussed last week about eating of his flesh, drinking of his blood, which rather difficult to understand. Now, while Jesus' main uh, confrontation, his main adversaries were in Jerusalem, this happened in a synagogue in Capernaum, which is in Galilee, North Galilee. If you go to Israel on a tour, they'll take you to a site which they believe is that very um, synagogue. It's, not, it's all kind of in ruins, but it's there. The men cited here were apparently those who followed Jesus in a literal, physical sense. They were his disciples. They followed him around. They listened to his preaching and teaching. And they apparently liked some of the things he had to say. But when it came to this stuff about you have to, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, that was, that was just too much. The, the translation says it was a difficult statement. Some translations say a harsh or a hard statement. It's the Greek word sclera. When I first came here in December of 1990, some of you know uh, Madeline Edgerton. Her husband, Jack, was still alive at the time. He had a condition that was called scleroderma, which meant a hardening of the tissues. It was evident in his fingertips and so forth, but it also affected his organ, and he, he died from that about a year and a half later. Sclera, it's a hard term and a harsh statement. Jesus responded to them by saying, that this teaching had caused them to stumble, stumble. That word is the word uh, scandalon, which is uh, where we get our word scandal from. It's translated elsewhere as a stumbling block. He said, you stumble over this teaching. You're not really trusting me. You're not really understanding. You fall from that. And sometimes the more difficult passages in the scriptures cause people to stumble and fall because they don't understand them or because they don't want to believe them. Uh, they doesn't match up with their own personal convictions already. They already believe this, and you tell me something that the Bible says is different than that. So they uh, can't accept that. So therefore, these men, some of his disciples, uh, didn't accept that. They didn't really understand who Jesus was, and they turned away. As we'll find out in the passage uh, in the sermon next week, many of them turned away. They really, really weren't ready to trust him in all aspects. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that these disciples that turned away or anybody else would lose their salvation if they don't completely fulfill everything a, a believer is supposed to do, a disciple is supposed to do. But they revealed themselves to not really be believers. And we're told, of course, Jesus himself says they were not really believers in the sense that would produce salvation. You know, they liked things he had to say as long as it went along with what they 
believed already. I often said the, the mark of a good book, if you read a book, you say, oh, that's a good book, is because it already agrees with what you think. You know, maybe they said it in a better way. So they revealed they really weren't true disciples, and that's what we want to discuss today, is that true disciples, what it takes to be the real thing. What it takes to be the real thing. Now, some definitions are in order. I'm just going to throw these out very quickly. But you'll see them on the screen. Christians, that's a word that was first used at Antioch to describe the believers who followed Jesus. That's, that means little Christ. When Hallie and I went to Bible college, which where we met, uh, the school was very evangelistic. It impressed upon us the importance and the urgency of telling people about Jesus in many ways. So we even had a class on personal evangelism, how to share Christ. And one of the things they told us is you don't ask a person if they're a Christian. Because I'm a child of the 50s and 60s, and I grew up in an environment where unless somebody happened to be Jewish or they were clearly from an Asian country that you thought might be some other kind of religion, you just accepted that everybody is a Christian. You're, you're a white European or whatever, you're a Christian. You know? So you don't ask somebody if they're a Christian because they have all kinds of ideas about what that means to be a Christian. Uh, of course I'm a Christian. You'd ask questions like, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? You know, and they'd say, well, I don't know. Would you like to know? Or there's another famous way of phrasing it. If you were to die and stand, and you are to die, and stand before the Lord in heaven, and he asks you the question, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? You know, so you get people to tell you what it is they do believe, because they could give you any number of things. The other, in the 1970s, people started using the words born-again Christian because a lot of conservative evangelical-type groups recognized that everybody thought they were Christians, but they emphasized the aspect of being a new birth, of born-again, using uh, John chapter 3, uh, Jesus' words to Nicodemus, that you're, you're a born-again Christian as opposed to a liberal Christian or whatever else. You, know, you actually know what it means to be saved. The Bible uses the word saint. Now, I know in some churches... The word saint is only applied to certain special individuals, certain special Christians that have done something noble or miracles and that kind of thing. The Bible uses it for all believers. Uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, I'm writing this to the saints at Corinth and saints everywhere. And the, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, they weren't all that high and mighty. You know, they, were, they had their issues. But the word saints, we also get our word sanctification. It's the word, Greek word hagios, which means holy ones. It's also translated holy one sometimes when it's talking about angels. It means, literally means set apart. And as a believer in Christ, we are set apart into the body of Christ, as we discussed last week. And we are part of him. We are distinct from everybody else. That doesn't mean we're arrogant or we go around like we're special. No. But it means we are set apart in the body of Christ as those who have been redeemed, forgiven our sins in Christ. Uh, there's other words you could use in the Bible as well. The Bible talks about brethren, brothers, uh, adelphos. That in Christ, because we're bound to him, we're bound to each other. We discussed that last week as well. Now, lately, a lot of people have been using the term Christ followers uh, to indicate maybe perhaps more than just simple belief. You're following Christ. You're trying to live by him. I, I personally, uh, be candid, I don't particularly use that term very often because I don't want to confuse believers or young believers especially that I'm judging if they're really saved as to how well they follow, because they may not follow. We're going to talk about that. They may not know everything they need to know. And then, of course, the word disciple. In the book of Acts, all believers were called disciples, not just the 
the 12 or the 11 that were left or the others, you know, they were all called disciples. They were all pupils, students, learners. So we want to discuss my first uh, point is becoming a true disciple begins with simple faith in Christ. You can put that up there, guys. Uh, when one recognizes, yeah, there's a, becoming a true disciple should be disciple uh, begins with simple faith in Christ. When re- one recognizes who Jesus really is, the Son of God in the flesh, and trusts in him for forgiveness of sin because we recognize we can't save ourselves, we're not perfect, then he is given the gift of eternal life. But then he puts him on the path to discipleship. But however, the path begins with simple childlike faith. I know that to be true because even a child can trust Jesus Christ, can understand what that means. And even an adult must come with the same kind of heart, not his own pride or what can I do or what must I do, or but simply recognizing there's nothing you can do. Uh, we used to say something like, all you have to do is trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, but I've changed that to all you can do is trust Jesus Christ as your Savior for eternal life. It's not your church membership, how many times a day you pray, or anything else. It's faith in Christ. Amen. So we must understand that, because if we think we're, you know, man's pride says, I must do something, I got to do something, then we forget what grace is. Paul said, it's either by grace and not by works, otherwise grace isn't grace. If it's by works, it's not by grace, otherwise work isn't work. So anyways, which brings us, you know, but, but new believers need to understand more about the fullness of their salvation and what that means in their life and their lifestyle and their worldview and so forth. It may take time and teaching and growth to be uh, truly on the path of discipleship. Now, it brings us to the continuing debate. Some people ask the question, are disciples born or are they made? People who say that disciples are born would contend that because you have come to Christ and you have a new birth in Christ, you are a disciple, you're born again, uh, you got this Holy Spirit and the new nature, and you just naturally will do these things and go on with it. Uh, other people say, well, disciples are made. You know, they're encouraged, they're, they're groomed, they're grown. It's, and I was at a pastor's meeting once, and I liked what the guy said when, concerning this debate. And he said this. I think I have a slide for that as well. He says, disciples are born to be made. Every believer it could be considered a disciple. But some of us, of course, are not as good as others. Some of us don't have the maturity of others. And we need to grow. So we could consider every believer in Christ, a disciple, but we need encouragement. It's kind of like the difference between the Great Commission in Mark chapter 16 is going to all the world and preach the gospel, the good news, to every creature. That's the gospel. Uh, Matthew's account of that, Matthew 20 says, go and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you. Okay, so a disciple is born to be made. We need to take the time to help young believers and weak believers in their walk and encourage them. What they don't need is our accusations that, well, they must not have really believed or they would be coming to church more regularly or they would be doing this or that or the other thing. Maybe they need to be encouraged or, or maybe they still have a drinking habit or a problem of, of anger 
whatever else, and we conclude, well, they must not really be saved. Now, I'm not saying that every person who walks an aisle or raises their hand for prayer or says uh, the sinner's prayer is, is truly born again. We don't know that. I'm not Jesus. I, the text here t- tells us that he knew these guys weren't, but I don't know that. But I do know that sometimes it takes uh, encouragement. Uh, Pastor Randy was saying in our Sunday school class about, in Jude, it talks about showing mercy to the, those that are doubting, you know, not just to say, uh, leave them be. So the accepting of Christ is, a, is an act of simple faith, but being a true disciple might be uh, sacrificial and a, a strong commitment. But I do believe there is a distinction between receiving the gift of eternal life and being challenged to pursue faithfulness as a believer. None of our works will keep us saved. They didn't cause us to be saved, and they don't keep us saved, but they demonstrate that God is working in our life, and we need to keep that in mind. I think sometimes it's dangerous for some people to point a finger at somebody and say, well, I don't know about their salvation. They're, they're still, they still curse or they still do this or that. The reason I say that is because I've, in some instances, I've known people that are very, seem to be very God-fearing, church-going, loving people, but when it comes right down to it, you find out that they really don't understand grace. They're doing some of these things because they think that's what gets them to heaven. As what, you know, believe in Jesus, but also do this. And that's not really grace. That's, again, works. So I keep that in mind. Now, I do believe there's a distinction between salvation and service. It's a fine line. It's a very fine line. Every believer should be doing the good works that God has prepared for them. Um, the reason I say that is on biblical basis, but also on personal basis. When I was, I, when I was growing up, I, I, I was taken to church every day. I mean, every Sunday. If, if you wanted to rob our house, you'd know where, I were, where we were on Sunday morning. So um, it wasn't a question. Uh, so when I was almost eight, seven, and ten months or whatever, um, it finally clicked that Jesus was God who died to pay for my sins, and I received Jesus as my Savior. And I understand that from that day forward that I was saved. It's like Pastor uh, Matt was saying three weeks ago, uh, John 6, 47, one of my favorite verses, it says, he who believes in me has everlasting life. doesn't say will have, might have, could have, has. It's a present possession, but it's not fully realized until we get to heaven, but it is ours. And we have the Holy Spirit who seals that, guarantees that salvation for us. So I knew I was saved, assuming that the Bible was true. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't have doubts, um, when I got in my junior high years, I re- realized that what I was being taught at school about the origin of life kind of disagreed with what the Bible says about creation and so forth. And I had to work through that. And I felt like, well, now, wait a second. I was born in, a, in America in a Christian home. And uh, so I, I know these things. I've been taught these things. I believe these things. But if I'd been born in India, I might have been a Hindu or a Buddhist or whatever. There's a lot of different religions over there. Um, so how do I know? Well, I had to search for answers to that, and I came to the conclusion that what the Bible has to say is not only valid, but more reasonable than anything else. And uh, so, you know, we might have doubts. I'm not God. I don't know everything. But I always challenge young people, especially if you have questions, search for the answers. The Bible stands for itself. It upholds itself. You don't have to, you don't have to just take what 
you know, uh, atheistic teachers or professors teach you. Uh, find out for yourself. But as a Christian, I really didn't know anything much about, you know, discipleship. You know, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't do anything really bad, specifically. Uh, you know, I wasn't out with the gang getting drunk on Friday nights or stuff like that. But I, I didn't do anything bad, but I really, it took somebody else to light a fire under me, to show me the importance of the word, to show me the urgency of sharing the gospel, of knowing what the scriptures say so you can defend your faith. Um, and so I think there's a distinction. It'd be nice if every Christian, who, everybody who came to Jesus automatically signed up for Bible studies and came, you know, to church five nights a week or whatever else, but that doesn't always happen. And so I, I think there is a, a, a line there. It's a, like I say, it's a very fuzzy line. We shouldn't make it too big of a line, but it is there. So I want to look at, in the time we have remaining, uh, at a parallel passage from Luke's Gospel, chapter uh, 9. It's also in Matthew 16 and, um, and Mark 8. But it, it concerns what Jesus said to his disciples um, and, uh, and, and what their thoughts were about him. So let's look at that. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them saying, who do people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one, that one of the prophets of old is risen again. Now, if you stop there, if, if it wasn't for Jesus, those would be very complimentary things. If it was anybody else, those would be, you know, high honors. But that fell far short from what, who Jesus really is. So it goes on and asks them, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Matthew passage says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. So uh, his identity is bound up in who he is as the eternal son of God who would come to die for us. But he, he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. So discipleship begins with the simple acceptance of who Jesus really is. I don't care what denomination or church or anything about Ask people, who is Jesus? And if they give you some kind of glowing but not sufficient, then they don't really know. They don't really know who he is. There are even churches that call themselves Christian that don't even believe he's the son of God. So that's, that's an issue. Now, I'm, faith it can be a tricky thing. Um, at Christmas time, you might see banners or things in people's lawns or in Christmas cards that said the word believe. Believe. In fact, uh, the personal injury attorney, uh, Morgan & Morgan, a few years ago, they had a big, huge billboard down here on Metro. All it said was believe, and then Morgan & Morgan. So the question I have is, believe what? Believe what? Believe in Santa Claus? Or world peace? Or that Morgan & Morgan can get you a fair settlement? You know? I don't know. I have to ask people, what are you believing? Recently, I've had conversations with a young man from Minnesota. He was somebody that my son Drew met at Word of Life Bible Institute in Screen Lake, New York, and he considered Drew his best friend. Well, when Drew died three years ago, he started calling me just to kind of keep in touch and stuff. But I've tried to pinpoint where he is with the Lord, and I don't really have a good answer for it. He, he keeps saying, I have my faith, I have my faith. But faith in what is the question? Uh, he even said, the last call we had, he quoted his uncle who said, well, it's better to believe in something than to believe in nothing. And he didn't like it much when I questioned that, when I challenged that statement. 
because you can believe in many of the wrong things. You know, we all know in recent years about Muslim terrorists strapping bombs to themselves or flying airplanes into buildings, believing that by doing so they will have an immediate interest in heaven because they've killed all these infidels. I don't know about you, but that took a lot of faith. I don't know how many of us would strap a bomb to ourselves and say that. You know, it takes a lot of faith, right? It's faith, but it's faith in the wrong thing. Faith only matters if it's in the right object, and that object, the only true and viable object, is Jesus Christ himself. Now, often, sometimes, when somebody's going through a tough time, others will say to them that they need more faith, and they seem to, seem to think of faith as some kind of quantitative thing that you just kind of build up a whole depth of faith, you just grab more faith, or an intensity, like you grit your teeth, and I really believe, I really believe, and so forth. But didn't Jesus say, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains? So it's not your faith that matters or my faith that matters. It's what we place our faith in. It's, it's the God that can move mountains, not me. And it's a faith that says, well, if I believe God can move that mountain, but he chooses not to, then I have faith that he knows best. You know, we sometimes doubt God because he doesn't do what we want. And so that's not really faith. That's not really trust in him. Mark chapter 9 uh, describes a man who had a young son who was demon-possessed, and he came to Jesus for help. And he said, I need your help. Your disciples haven't been able to cast out the demon And he made the mistake of saying, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus more or less looked at him and said, what do you mean if? You know, and so then the man kind of corrected himself and says, Lord, I I believe, but help my unbelief. And I think that's where a lot of us are in certain situations. We we believe, but we have doubts about other things, and we need uh, expanded faith. Jesus on several times, several occasions told his disciples, said to his disciples and others, O ye of little faith. What he was really saying was, about that particular situation and that circumstance, they had no faith. Because they may have believed many things about Jesus, but they didn't have faith about that. And so even, even Peter, after he gave his rock-solid confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, you know, and Jesus says, well done. Then he starts telling them about his crucifixion. And what did Peter do? He said two words in the English Bible, at least, but don't go together. He said, no, Lord. No, Lord, that'll never happen. And that's when he turned to Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, he was just saying that he's following Satan's agenda to try to prevent him from going to the cross. So Peter understood many things about Jesus. He just said he's the son of God, but now he's doubting about that. Now, before we before we too, too critical of Peter, recognize he probably had this out of a sincere desire to protect Jesus. You know, he, he loved him. He wanted, he just didn't know what this is all about. So they, even until the resurrection, they didn't fully understand everything. They, they, didn't, they didn't know what was going to happen. But so they had trust in some areas. So I look at increasing of faith as more in terms of, I trust in Jesus as my savior. I know that he's God. He died well, died for my sins. But as I walk with Jesus, my faith is enlarged, not because I have an intensity or I've acquired, conjured up more faith in this way, but as I see him work in my life, I see more areas of my life that I can trust him in. 
I, have to, I come to a realization that I can trust him in more and more things. So it's more like a broadening of faith. And that's, that's what I think faith is, understanding and accepting. You, you, you might trust Jesus for other things. You might, like for instance, you might trust your parents, but you may doubt that they can do this or that. So we trust him in more things. Now I'm going to go back to the, um, um, the passage in Luke. We're going to look at it again. And that's where, but that's where discipleship begins. That is um, in simple faith. And it may take a while to broaden that faith, to deepen it in some sense of the word. But then I think Jesus challenged his disciples in, in uh, uh, Luke in verse 23, if we can put that up there. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, I believe that this speaks of the fact that true discipleship, following him on a regular basis, uh, takes sacrificial commitment. Um, Sometimes when people read this, they think it's still talking about the gospel, but I would, I would trust you, I would, I would point out to you, let's put the, uh, let's see, what's it, verse 24, um, it says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Now, in the Bible, when, whenever you see the word save or the word soul, people automatically think heaven, that you're going to heaven. But the word save has sozo in the Greek has many different aspects to it. It sometimes is translated save, sometimes it's talking about deliverance or preservation or keeping, or even in some passages it's talking about healing. Somebody was saved, meaning they were healed. Uh, also, the word soul is the word suke, and that's a word that means life, it means soul, it means other things, uh, self. And so uh, like they get to the, that uh, aspect of saving your life will lose it. Well, none of us save our lives, right? in the sense of eternal life. So I think what it's talking about here is when you try to keep your life to yourself as a believer, as a disciple, when you hang on to your life, you ultimately will lose it because you've spent your, you spent your existence on other things. Uh, let me go back up. I skipped over that first verse. Um, you must deny yourself, uh, take up your cross and follow me. And I, I don't have time to do justice to this passage, but self, denial of self is not self-denial in the sense that you uh, abstain from pleasurable things. Uh, you live a monastic life like some monks who, who just had bread and water because they were trying to uh, not appeal to the flesh. It doesn't mean self-denial that I won't have that second piece of pie. What it means is I deny my own self-interest for the cause of Christ. And when you saw people take up their cross... Uh, it was well a familiar sight in Jerusalem when you saw a guy carrying his cross, which is the Romans had them do, not just Jesus but others. When you saw them taking up their cross, you knew they weren't coming back. Okay, they were on a path to their death, and that was no there's no turning back of, of that. And then follow me, that is to listen and abide by those things. But keep those things in mind, and I won't get into the whole discussion here. But we don't we don't save our life eternally. But we can hold back our lives. We can keep it to ourselves. And, and the end result is, if you live as a Christian and you don't consider what God wants you to do and you just kind of go along that, I'm not saying you're not saved, but you're, 
you're being selfish, and ultimately, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which all believers will do, you will have to give an accounting for how you spent your time. Not, not for entrance into heaven, but how you used your life for Christ. And some of us may not have much to show for that, so we will actually lose our life. Even that last, that verse 25, what good, what good does it do a person if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? And the, and the Matthew passage says, if he loses a soul. And people often say, so you can have all the riches in the world, but if you die and go to hell, it doesn't matter. Well, that's a true statement, but I don't think that's what the statement's saying. I think it's saying that you've lost your life. That's the word suke again. Uh, if, you, if you just waste your life on your own pleasures, uh, Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth where, where thieves break through and steal and moth corrupts and so forth, but use your life, invest your life for Christ. And then that last verse, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed. Uh, I know many, many commentators will say this is being cast into hell, but I, I don't really think that's the case. You know, when I was a, had kids at home and I was a parent and, and they played in the neighborhood, um, if, I, if I heard about one of their friends down the street that did something awful, uh, I wasn't ashamed of them. Their parents might be, but I wasn't. It wasn't my kid. I might feel badly for him and for the parents, but now if my kid stepped out of line, then I have shame. And I think, I think that when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, there is going to be some regrets. There's going to be some uh, sorrows that we didn't do all that we could. I think all of us will have those. How many? I hope not many, but the point is we will be a judge for our works, not to get to heaven, but for rewards and loss of rewards. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 3 and uh, 2 Corinthians uh, you know, 510, that we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ. So living as a true disciple takes sacrificial commitment. Becoming a disciple, becoming a, a, a child of God is by simple faith, but we have to commit to doing things for the Lord that will bring profit to his glory and to our uh, helpful satisfaction as well. By the way, um, Jesus told his disciples that you'll be my witnesses unto the ends of the earth. Now, a lot of people uh, look at the word martyr. We hear about martyrs that died for their faith. Well, the word for martyr is the same word that's translated witness. We ought to be prepared to die for our faith, but we also need to be prepared to live for our faith. That is, uh, use all of our time and energies to that end. So that's what it, that's what it means. It begins with simple faith in Christ. Living as a true disciple takes sacrificial commitment. And then my main point is what it takes to be the real thing. Um, now, I'm going to uh, close with um, kind of a song that I want you to join me in. By the way, Coca-Cola, uh, some of you have been to my house. I hope, I'd love to have any of you there. If you've ever been there, a number of years ago, we remodeled our family room, and I put a lot of nostalgic things up. So I started collecting a few little Coca-Cola items. So ever since that, people have been giving me more stuff. Don't give me any more stuff because i got too much now. But one of the things I bought at Lowe's uh, when our granddaughters were really little was, was Coca-Cola bears that are animated and play music. Uh, it's a combination of uh, uh, Deck the Halls and uh, the Coke song. So I have them in the back if you want to hear them. I thought about bringing them up here, but I think you, you can go back and listen to what they have to say, uh, how they sing. Uh, anyways, so... I want to close with a song that uh, we're not going to put up on the screen, but it's a simple song. Uh, I have decided to follow Jesus. So let's stand together and sing. It's repetitive, so if you don't know this song, you'll catch on very quickly. Uh, 
And I think most of you probably know, okay? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. And the last verse, though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. I forgot to ask Joe to come up and play some music, making play some closing music as we dismiss. Let's, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave your all for us, and may we give our all for you. We all fall short of that in so many different ways. I know there'll be many deep regrets as we stand before you, giving accounting for our life, but may we consciously be thinking of your will in our lives and your, your purpose and plan for us. Uh, we, we thank you that the salvation was a free gift given, but it was a costly gift that cost Jesus his life and much suffering, and bearing the sins of the world. I just thank you, Lord, that we could be more committed as we come into this new year. Uh, every, every day should be special to you. We just thank you for this group of believers and their commitment to you as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com, or drop us a line via email connect at villasgrace.com.